Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. Is it true? Is it true? This is the question I was asking myself in my late teens and early 20s as I was challenged by other people offering competing narratives to what I have grown up believing, growing up in a Christian home and being taught the word of God from an early age, I found myself doubting what I believed and why I believed it. I was enrolled in a community college and I was taking a philosophy 101 class and my professor uh, made no attempt to hide his disdain for anyone who would believe in a God or a supernatural deity. I felt a little bit lost. And I remember praying and trying to feel the Lord and, and really come to a sense of solution or closure. And, and, and there was just a season where I just felt dry and I just felt a little bit lost. And I remember as clear as it was yesterday, I was driving home and, and there was a moment where God just revealed himself to me in my car, my 1979 Subaru Brat. Yeah, that is a car. It's another story, but God's presence fell on me. I, I knew what I knew to be true, but I, but I also knew God to just be real in a fresh way. And it was around that same time that God brought great resources into my life that spoke to me, not just about what I believe, but, but why I could believe it. That I could believe, not in spite of the evidence, but in light of the evidence. And I look back on that season, I'm so grateful for that time for God to really solidify some things into my heart and in my life. And honestly, I, I still draw from that season of my life today. And that was, a, that was a big question for me. Is it true? And, and I think those questions are still being asked today. And I think every generation is asking questions about the Christian faith. Is it true? Is God real? Is the resurrection an actual historical fact? But I've seen a shift in the last five to 10 years where I think less and less people are asking, is it true? And they're asking about Christianity. Is it good? Is it good? Can the gospel really be good news to someone who's been burned by the church and maybe even experienced abuse by the hand of leadership? Can the gospel be good news to someone who just perceives Christianity as being far too political? Can the gospel be good news to the intellectual who struggles and wants to see evidence and, and facts for the supernatural, uh, supernatural aspects of the faith? Can the gospel be good news to our friends and family who identify as LGBTQ? And there's a couple of weeks as I was listening to Pastor Nate teach us through 1 Peter in chapter 2 that I was struck just afresh with one of the verses there. It's chapter 2, verse 3 that says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I think the reality is for many of us here today, maybe most of us, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
We've experienced the goodness of the Lord in our lives. We've come to see his gospel as good news, and we've come to see the work that he does in our lives as a good work. But I wonder if for some, maybe the question you're asking today is, is the gospel really good news for me, for my situation, for my background, for my experience? Can the gospel be good news for me? As a minister of the gospel, I believe the gospel of Jesus to be good news, not just for me, but I believe it to be good news for everyone who believes. No matter their background or status before coming to Jesus, the gospel received is good news for every person who believes because the gospel is about a good Lord. It's about the good things he has done and the good work that he can do in our lives. I believe the gospel to be good news because it is primarily about a good Lord and the good work that he's done and the good work he wants to continue in our lives. And so this morning, I want to look at this encounter that Jesus had with this man that I believe puts on display the goodness of our Lord and then shows us someone who tasted and saw afresh that the goodness of God was real and it was tangible. It was something that could impact and change his entire life. So let's look at this passage Let's break, break it down and then we'll look at our good Lord in ways that we can taste of his goodness. We find out our two main characters in verses one and two. Jesus, he entered Jericho, this cosmopolitan city, this influential city, and he was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, this is all we need to know about Zacchaeus to know why Luke told us and, and what he wants us to feel. So, we learn that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. So this is happening around the time that the Jews were under Roman occupation. And so they were living under the, the oppression of, of the Roman government. And so part of that oppression included taxes that they had to pay to Rome. And of course, um, the Jews did not like this. I don't know if anybody has ever liked taxes, so to speak, but they especially didn't like it because those that were taxing them or the ones collecting the taxes, these tax collectors, they were also Jewish. And so you had your fellow Jew who was essentially extorting from you for Rome because the, Jews, uh, the Jewish tax collectors wouldn't only just charge the tax, they would add on the fees that they could then skim off the top for their own benefit. So you had tax collectors who would sometimes charge exorbitant amounts in order that they could benefit from the oppression of their own people. So then you can see pretty easily why they looked down so strongly on tax collectors. They were their own people, but they were using this, this system of oppression to become wealthy. And this is exactly who Zacchaeus is. Not only is he one of these tax collectors, he's a chief tax collector. Oh, so he's one of the top dog tax collectors. He's one of the bosses. He's at the top of the pyramid. So he's not only benefiting from the, the, the Jew who is paying these taxes, he's benefiting from those under him that he's training. He's showing how to, how to become wealthy. And the last thing we hear about him that Luke adds, I love it, and he was rich. <laughs> so he wasn't just a tax collector. He wasn't just a chief tax collector. He was really, really good at cheating people. He was really, really good at extorting them. This is what we need to know. And, and I think Luke wants us to feel what we're going to see the crowd feels later on, what, what the culture felt towards someone like a Zacchaeus. And we think of a modern day equivalent who, who are individuals, who are people known in society as people that have just done terrible, wicked, horrible things. 
There's still people like that. Even in a, in a culture that is tending more towards amorality, there's, there's still things that our culture looks down on. You know, you think of a, a Jeffrey Epstein or you think of um, a Henry Weinstein, these people that have just been debased and disgusted by, by culture. So in, in that kind of same vein, you can think of a Zacchaeus fitting into one of those categories. So what is, what is this Zacchaeus doing? What, why is he a part of this story? Well, he hears about this man named Jesus. He hears that this Jesus is coming through town and he wants to catch a glimpse of him. This man that he keeps hearing about, he's heard the stories of him doing miracles and of him performing all these incredible things and teaching these just really counter countercultural truths. And so uh, Zacchaeus just wants to get a glimpse. He wants to see him. He wants to meet this man. But the problem is the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus is short. (laughs) He's small in stature. Now, I, I believe that Jesus has a soft spot for shorter people. You know, he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And so there's just a, you know, we think that, uh, I think that Jesus, you know, had a, had a sweet spot for them. But he's so short that, that the Bible tells us that this is a main descriptor of who he was to the point where he needed to climb up in a tree in order to be able to see Jesus. So this man has planned this out. This man has looked, he's analyzed the trees, He finds a a sycamore tree, a sturdy one, one that has a big enough branch that he can crawl out on and and then see Jesus there. And and to think that climbing a tree, you know, today, uh, by the way, how many of you were in a tree yesterday, like just climbing a tree? Any show of hands? Okay, yeah, maybe one or two. Not typically something we do, right? (laughs) Not typically, if you're going to come over to our house for dinner, you know, my wife's going to be made, you know, she's not going to say, hey, Matt's going to be right here. He's just coming down from a tree. Um, Just does that every Friday night just for fun. That's not something we do. And it wasn't something they did back in Jesus's time either. It was looked down on. It was um, ridiculed. I mean, that would have been very undignified, very humbling of a thing to do. That just shows us a little bit of how desperate Zacchaeus was, how desperate this man was to see Jesus. Don't you love that desperation? I love that desperation of Zacchaeus. So he climbs a tree. And when Jesus came to the place in verse five, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. He calls him out by name. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? I mean, to be Zacchaeus up in a tree, you're looking down. Am I gonna see him? Well, you saw him, but then you got even more than that. He saw you and he called you by name. Uh, years ago, I had the opportunity to go to New York um, with a friend and uh, we got to see a San Francisco Giants game in old historic Yankee Stadium. And that was a treat. I, I'm a big Giants fan and love baseball. And then we got to do the other kind of New York stuff and Statue of Liberty, Brooklyn Bridge, all that. And then the buddy I went with, he, he, he gets a real kick out of meeting celebrities and that was really something he wanted to do on this trip. And so, you know, we were walking along and we were going somewhere in the city and we decided to take this kind of like shortcut and we went down this kind of alleyway and um, walked by these two guys that were sitting on a loading dock and then cruised by, didn't think anything of it. But then they both kind of caught our eye and one guy in particular. So we, we stopped a while down and looked at each other and we're like, hey, was that? We looked back and yeah, that's Elijah Wood, Frodo Baggins. Lord of the Rings. We're like, 
he's just totally chilling there. He's drinking a coffee. I'm like, should we, should we be those guys that go over and say hi and ask for a picture? And we're like, absolutely. So we did. We cruised on back. We're like, hey, Elijah Wood? And he's like, yeah, yeah, totally. And he was uh, super down to earth, which is what we say about all celebrities, right? I want to meet a celebrity who's not down to earth, who's just like up here the whole time. So I can just say he was totally not down to earth. He was like on another planet. It was awesome. Um, But Elijah Wood was down to earth. And uh, he let us take his picture. And I was standing by him. And I remember looking down at his feet just to make sure that those, those hobbit feet were really prosthetics, and they were. He, he had normal-sized feet on. A few other details I noticed. I was a little bit taller than him, which is not a big deal, but I just thought I should share that. And um, so I'm standing there, and we take the picture, and we, we leave, and, you know, kind of a cool moment, especially for my friend who's all about that, and it was just kind of a cool thing. And, you know, I was thinking back, you know, and, and knowing, knowing this story in, in the Bible, too, you know, essentially Jesus is kind of this celebrity that, that Zacchaeus is wanting to meet, and you know, imagine if I would have went to Elijah Wood and I said, Elijah Wood? And he looked at me and said, Matt Kaler? That would have been shocking, you know? I'm sure he'd say that now because I think we had a connection when we met. I think, I think you'll remember that 20 years later. But, you know, this is essentially what, what's happening is Zacchaeus had to be shocked. He had to be floored. You know, he's up in the tree. I, I, I imagine he's not necessarily wanting to be pointed out. He, he wants to see Jesus, but he gets the shock of a lifetime. Jesus sees him and calls him by name and then says, I want to stay at your house. Jesus invites himself over. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, I want to be associated with you. I want to be your friend. We're going to unpack that a little bit later, but that, that's, there's, there's something so powerful and significant about that. We learn the next kind of group or characters in our story, <clears throat> and it's in verse 7. And who are they? They are they. They're the they's. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They grumbled. They, they, they had such indignation that Jesus would ever consider himself to be the friend of someone who was what another translation says, a notorious sinner like Zacchaeus. They're appalled. I mean, Jesus in their eyes has just totally gone down several rungs. I can't, Jesus, we had you up here. Are you kidding me? A Zacchaeus? You're hanging out with him? Oh man, I can't believe it. They're grumbling, they're complaining. They're upset. And in verse 8, in Zacchaeus' home, he stands and says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I believe this is part of Zacchaeus' conversion experience. And I, I think it started the moment that Jesus called out to him in the tree. I think there was a change that started happening in his heart. That, that resulted in this kind of repentance, which we call when we see the way we're going and we say, I can't go that way anymore. I know that's not God's plan for my life. So we, we do a 180. We turn away from that. Zacchaeus, for him to say, what I've been doing and taking and stealing and extorting, I can't do this anymore. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn from that. But then in addition to that, there's restitution. There's not just repentance, there's restitution. And he says, the, the things I've taken, I want to give back. 
I want to restore up to fourfold. Jesus said, today salvation's come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. And commentators are saying that this is probably due to the fact that Zacchaeus was often ridiculed as not being a real Jew because of his occupation and how he would steal and take from his fellow Jew. And this was Jesus' way of wanting everyone to know that Zacchaeus was really a son of Abraham, both by genetics and by faith, because he really joyfully received Jesus. And we close with a final descriptor of the mission of Christ, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I love this story. There's so much here. And with the time that we have, here's what I want to do. I want to point out just three things that this story shows us about the goodness of our Lord. And then I want to look at three ways we can respond to taste of the goodness of our God. Number one, I think a lesson that we learn here about our good Lord is that he knows you by name. He knows you by name. I wonder for Zacchaeus if this was one of the first times in a while that he heard someone say his name with kindness. That someone other than his mother saying his name in a way that wasn't followed by a slanderous word. For Zacchaeus to have his name uttered by the creator of the world, the savior of the world, had to to hit him right in the heart, to melt his heart. It was really Jesus' way of saying, I know you and I lay some claim upon you. To me, this speaks to those of us that feel often overlooked. Maybe you don't fit into traditional categories. Maybe you feel invisible to certain people around you, your family, your friends, maybe your church. Maybe you're the type of person that everyone comes to with their junk and they get your advice and they want to talk to you, but maybe they're not asking you in the same moment how you're doing, how you feel. Maybe you feel invisible, overlooked, alone. The good news is our good Lord sees you. Our good Lord sees you and he calls you by name. You know, astronomers tell us that there are perhaps 100 billion galaxies that can be detected by the Hubble telescope, and most most of those galaxies contain billions of stars. Now, I can't get my mind around that. That's, That's insane. The expanse of our universe and the design that God did to, to, to create such a universe just shows me how powerful and majestic he is. And, and then the fact that Psalm 147 says that he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. I, I trip out on that. It's, it's incredible. And, and then to know about my creator and our, our, our designer that he's created a, a, a species of animal like my son, my eight-year-old tells me, he says, dad, do you know there's 160 species of chameleon? Of course, as any dad, you're like, yeah, yeah. It was a whole, oh, it's 160? Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at my wife, I'm like, did you? No, okay, we're good. We're at that stage where he's teaching us. Okay, cool. I'm locked in, I'm ready for this. For Canon to say, dad, you know, there's one that's called the pygmy leaf chameleon. It's in the jungles of Madagascar. For those of you that know Canon, you can hear him saying that. It's the smallest species of chameleon with some males measuring less than three centimeters long three centimeters long. Wow, that's like somewhere, that's like really small can, right? Yeah, dad. They've got an amazing design, a tube tongue that shoots out up to twice the length of its body. And I just hear this and I'm just taking it in and, and to be able to see the, the magnificent design and incredible, incredible power that our creator has to put these things into place 
to create this light. To know that he not only knows the stars, but he knows them by name. He's created incredible diverse creation and animals. And then to know that he knows your name. The same God that did all those things knows your name. He knows my name. For those that feel overlooked or lonely or abandoned, our good Lord comes in and says, I know you. I know you even better than you know you. To look up in the tree, wherever we are, wherever we're hiding, wherever we're wanting to be unnoticed, and for him to say, I know you, and I know your name, and I want to be with you. J.I. Packer, in his seminal work, Knowing God, has this to say about the, the significance of God knowing us. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there's no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Our good Lord sees you. Not only does he see you, he knows you and cares about you by name. Number two, what I see in this passage is that he calls you friend. Our good Lord calls you friend. Now, there, there is something so profound about Jesus's invitation uh, to, uh, to Zacchaeus for him to come over to his house. It breaks are uh, kind of norms of, you know, maybe what's um, proper etiquette. And yet in that day, it really was a sign of acceptance and the extending of friendship. Jesus isn't merely trying to convert Zacchaeus in a spiritual sense. He wants to know Zacchaeus and be known by him. He wants to be friends with the outcast, the sinner, the friendless. And what did Jesus do to get there? He, he was willing to be despised by the crowd and be associated with a notorious sinner because this is what Jesus does and this is who he is. Now, to see our good Lord as friend, it may not be something that resonates with us as much as maybe in past generations. And I think part of the reason is our culture, I think our culture has a thin definition of what true friendship is. I think our culture is having a hard time promoting healthy non-erotic relationships between same-gender friends. I think there's a lot of confusion about what is a healthy friendship. And we look in times past, we look in history, we look in the scriptures, and we see the importance of really solid, true friendships. That friendship is something that God has given us to enjoy. And I know that that's, a, that's another sermon for us to dive into more, but I see the church as being really at the corner of this and, and really needing to be promoting true, healthy friendship. Because the reality is the Bible describes what we do here as, as a family. And that means that we're gonna have people who are coming to our family who are married, people who are single, people who are divorced, people who are widowed. And the solution for everyone is not gonna be marriage. <laughs> the solution needs to be friendship, deep, meaningful friendship. And I believe Jesus gives us the blueprint. Jesus even said, no greater love has any man than this than they would lay down their life for a friend. You see, Jesus is the ultimate friend. In fact, here's the kind of friend that he's described at, as in Matthew 19, excuse me, eleven nineteen. He's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Isn't that great? His enemies meant that title as an indictment upon him. But for those of us that say, I'm one of those sinners, it becomes nothing but just extremely comforting to know that Jesus wants to be my friend. You think about your friendships, you think about the gift of good friends and true friends and what does a true friendship have? What does a true friend do? They make you feel safe. Make you feel safe to be yourself, to open up, to, to share your life and thoughts and not have fear of being pushed away. C.S. Lewis, who's written a lot on friendship, says this about friendship. Friendship is born out of the moment when one man says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. Because there's something that kindles. There's something that just happens in really powerful friendships. And we should, we should guard those. We should be so thankful for those. And then we should endeavor to be a good friend. Proverbs 18, 24 says, one who is unreliable friend soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now take what we know of friends, take the, the best parts of your friendships with those in this earthly realm, and then look to Jesus as one who's perfect, who then invites you into that kind of friendship, that kind of intimacy, that kind of love. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a terrific book, and the title comes from the only place in, in, the, in the Gospels where Jesus describes his own heart. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He says, in Jesus, we have a friend who is always, excuse me, in Jesus, we have a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. Christ's heart for us means that he will be our never failing friend, no matter what friends we do or do not enjoy on earth. He offers us a friendship that gets underneath the pain of our loneliness. While that pain does not go away, its sting is made fully bearable by the far deeper friendship of Jesus. He walks with us through every moment. He knows the pain of being betrayed by a friend, but he will never betray us. He will not even so much as coolly welcome us. That's not who he is. That is not his heart. Jesus wants to be our friend. The late 90s and early 2000s, there was a band that really ministered to my heart as I was playing music and singing in, in, in worship bands and these things. And um, the band's Delirious is their name. They're, they're from England. Some of you maybe know about them. I feel like their songs still, they still rock. There's just, just something still powerful about them. But the, the song Jesus, Friend Forever is one that I still just love and read you the verses of it. It says, what a friend I've found closer than a brother. I have felt your touch more intimate than lovers. What a hope I've found more faithful than a mother. It would break my heart to ever lose each other. Goes on to say, Jesus, 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 friend forever. Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants to associate himself with you. Number three, what's the third thing we see about our good Lord on display? He gives you new desires. He gives you new desires. Or to borrow language from the great Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he reorders your affections. See, in this encounter, Zacchaeus this wealthy, powerful, selfish man becomes a generous, compassionate, and humble person. <laughs> How in the world does that happen? Well, what's, the, what's the, the difference? What's the change? What's the dynamic at play? He meets Jesus. 
He invites Jesus into his home, into his life, and his affections are reordered. And, and, and I believe this is the great work that God does in our lives as we surrender to his lordship. He, he gives us new desires, and the desires that formerly drove us start to shift or take a back seat. Some of them just fade. Others of them fade away completely. What does Edwards mean by affections? Well, one, one author unpacks it this way. When, when he speaks about affections and our affections being reordered, they're not just the surface feelings of fondness, tenderness, or emotional attachment. No, the, the affections go much deeper. They're the deepest desires, the most powerful aspirations, the strongest motivations of the human soul. The affections are the mighty urges of our hearts. Our, our affections ignite us. They, they kindle our spirits. They set us aflame. They determine how our hearts are tilted. They incline us, lying at the base of everything we are and do. See, the process of inviting our good Lord into a our lives is to offer those affections to him and say, Lord, you reorder these. Lord, I want you to shape or better yet reshape the affections and loves of my heart in accordance with the loves and affections of Jesus. And if you're willing to trust him with your affections, you're going to discover that he replaces your disordered loves with, with his love, with his affirmation, with his embrace. This is the good work he desires to do in us. But does Zacchaeus really change? How do we know? Well, the biblical narrative doesn't continue as Zacchaeus' story, but if we look to church history, which isn't the same as scripture, but, but as best we can tell, we know from the history of the church that Clement, who was the bishop of Alexandria, in a homily, in a sermon of his, he says that this man, Zacchaeus, actually went on to become bishop of Caesarea, possibly appointed by Peter himself, which would lead us to say that he really did change. By the grace of God, he went from a thief to essentially becoming a pastor. This would have required him to quit his job, his employment, his source of income with the Roman government, which would require a complete alteration in his standard of living. And then to become a pastor, to tell others about this Jesus that changed his life. Reordered affections led to a reordered life. And that's the good work that the Lord wants to do. So how do we taste and see that he's good? How can we be a part of that? Three, three quick things as we close. Number one, you gotta be willing to climb a tree. Gotta be willing to climb a tree. You see, what happened when Zacchaeus climbed that tree? He put away his pride, his dignity. He put away what the crowd may think of him. He didn't let that affect him or change him because he just wanted to see Jesus. And guys, the biggest barrier between us tasting of the goodness of the Lord and coming to salvation is our pride. And we need to humble ourselves and in a sense, climb a tree. Be willing to climb that tree, to do something that others are gonna see as undignified or humbling. We climb a tree even if it means being ridiculed by the crowd, even if it means culture looking down on us as though we were weak, or silly. When he climbed that tree, he paid an enormous price. But he got Jesus. He got a friend. He got someone who knew his name. He got someone that reordered his entire life. You see, more and more in our culture, it's becoming clear that the view of Christianity in the world's eyes is one that's 
that's seen as increasingly hostile to society. And so for someone to profess faith in Christ, to believe the Bible, to live out the gospel is going to be seen more and more like climbing a tree. But even in our study in 1 Peter, as we're going to look in the next couple of weeks as Pastor Nate continues to lead us through chapter 2, we're going to see that, th- that this was true of Jesus. So how much more will it be true of us that associate with Jesus? The scriptures will tell us that he's the, he's the stone the builders rejected, that he is a stone of stumbling for those that don't believe, but for those that do believe, that see our Lord is good, that see his gospel is good, that see his work is good. He's our foundation. He's our chief cornerstone. Are you willing to climb the tree? But I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, but once you're up in that tree, you realize that you're in really good company. There's some really interesting people in that tree too. There's, there's men and women of, of past history that, that are brilliant thinkers, brilliant minds that aren't believing in, in spite of the evidence, but believing in light of the evidence. And we can be comforted by the great cloud of witnesses that we're not alone in this, that you're not the only one, but you have a family. Climb a tree. Number two, don't get caught in the crowd. Don't get caught in the crowd. You see, one thing that will keep us from really tasting of the goodness of the Lord is getting caught in the crowd. What marked the crowd? Well, what were they disgusted at? Ultimately, they were frustrated and appalled at Jesus. How dare he show kindness to the sinner? How dare he show grace to the sinner? They wanted to cancel Zacchaeus, right? There's no, there's no him coming back. There's no redemption for Zacchaeus. The theme of redemption has been lost in our culture. There's no coming back once you've been canceled. But Jesus sees something different. Our good Lord has a different gospel that says, no, you can be redeemed by me. Because none of us are so far gone that you just have to say, we're done. Just stop. Just stop doing what you're doing. Jesus says, I will come after you. But the crowd is going to keep us from tasting of the Lord's goodness. How do we get caught up in the crowd? By being like them. By seeing everyone as the other. By seeing everyone as the enemy. By seeing everyone as less worthy of God's love. By seeing everyone as the sinner. You see, we need to continue to let the gospel humble us. Let the grace of God humble us. And realize it's not... Well, God hates the sin, but loves a sinner. It's God hates the sin, but loves us sinners. (laughs) We're a part of that. The problem with the self-righteous crowd is that they left no room for the righteousness of Jesus. But who ended up eating a meal with Jesus? It was Zacchaeus. It was this notorious sinner. It wasn't the crowd. It wasn't the crowd that went off disappointed, go, ah, I don't know about this guy. I'll have to think about that but they missed out on an opportunity to eat a meal with the creator of the universe. But there's Zacchaeus eating with Jesus. Who, if God saved and forgave, would cause you to grumble? If God saved that group or that person, would you grumble? Or would you say, praise God. His grace is that big. His love is that big. Friends, don't get caught in the crowd by being like them. Number three, invite Jesus into your home. This is the invitation from Jesus to each of us. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. He really was saying, make your home in me. When Zacchaeus invited Jesus into his home, it wasn't just Zacchaeus saying, I want you to be with me. It was Jesus saying, I want to be with you. 
And this is an ongoing experience that we get to have with our Lord. We get to continually invite him into our home. We get to continue to have him be just the center of our lives, whether that's centering ourselves around his word and remembering his good gospel and being reminded of that because there's competing narratives that are blasting us every day that are gonna challenge the goodness of the Lord, to be reminded of it, to be connected and communicating with him in prayer and offering up praise and worship to the Lord. These are things that, that allow us to try and experience, to taste and to see of his goodness. You ever had somebody that tried to convince you that, they, that you need to see a certain movie that you haven't seen? Some people that, you know, they just love the movie so much. You, you haven't seen it? Oh, you got to stop everything you're doing right now. It's going to change your life. You know? They just go on about it, and you're like, okay, I get it, I get it. You, you like this movie. This is good. And then you see the movie, right? And I don't know if it, it just blew you away or whatever it is, but you were finally able to try it yourself and experience it for yourself. I remember trying to explain to my boys what it'd be like when they were finally able to have a Chick-fil-A grilled chicken nugget with their choice of 32 different sauces, a large lemonade. It's impossible to explain into words. You kind of have to just try and experience it for yourself. I know that I know the challenge of using a Chick-fil-A illustration on a Sunday when they're closed because you can't go after church and go to Chick-fil-A. So maybe now you're grumbling like the crowd at me because I brought it up. So you need to repent of that. But, you know, once you experience it for yourself, there's something that changes, right? It goes from being someone's opinion or, or something that someone has presented to you. And now it becomes your own experience that you can share. That's what happened with Zacchaeus. I wonder how that just reverberated through his, you know, at his tax collector conferences. Why, wait, why isn't, why isn't Zacchaeus speaking on that thing that he normally speaks about? He's talking about some other thing. You know, how, how did that stretch out? How did that reverberate throughout the community? Invite Jesus into your home. and Just be ready for him to reorder those desires, reorder the loves of your heart. He wants to do that. And the last thing I want to say, and, and, and as we look at our good Lord and we look that he knows our name and he calls us friend and he gives us new desires and to taste of his goodness, we've got to be willing to climb a tree, to humble ourselves, to not get caught in the crowd and continually invite him into our home. There's one more thing that I saw here in this, in this passage that I hadn't seen before. Who are they grumbling at? Who are they grumbling at? I think I just thought like, oh, it's Zacchaeus, like they, they hate him, he's this bad dude, whatever. But really their grumbling is pointed at Christ. What Jesus did when he associated himself with Zacchaeus is he literally stepped in between the shame that Zacchaeus was receiving and he became shameful in the eyes of the crowd. He became someone that they didn't want to associate with. And isn't that what he did for us on the cross? When Jesus died on the cross, you see, he entered into our shame. He took it upon himself. He took our sin upon himself and he was willing to be despised and rejected by men so that we could be saved. 
To me, there is a glimpse of the cross in this passage that we need to see that just makes our Savior that much more good. That he takes your guilt, this sense that I've done wrong, and your shame, this sense that I haven't only done wrong, but I am wrong. There's something with me, in me, that's kind of messed up or broken. He takes that. And he says, give that to me. I've paid for that on the cross. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you a new life. I want to allow you to die to your old life and then be raised to new life. And that's what baptism is. We're going to enjoy that in just a moment. But he did that for you and me. He was willing to be seen as shameful, willing to be despised, rejected, so that we could know him as friend. That's our good Lord. That's his good gospel. And that's the good work he wants to do in our lives. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.